Good morning. Wow, that was loud. Uh, my name is Raul Perez. I'm a senior associate pastor here at Bethany North. Uh, pastor Scott, Heather, and family are one week into a three-week vacation, praise God. So they're getting some rest and relaxation. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever done something and then gotten a warning not to do that, but it totally ignored that warning and just went right back in and got the same treatment again and again? My wife and I, we just bought a house in Everett about a month ago. We've been revamping it, spending weekends going up there, working. And this last weekend, we had big plans. We're moving next Saturday. So we got big plans to get projects done. And we go there, and I have this idea. I'm going to replace some uh, of the white picket fence posts with my boys. Something to do, you know, hard work. And so we're walking up to the front of the house. They've got their pickets in their hands, and I, I go down under the big rhododendron to plug in the extension cord, and I get stung in the back, and I'm swatting it, and I'm, like, backing up, and I'm starting to see stars. I don't, I don't know exactly what happened. And so I start to investigate the bush and start to look around and see, can I find what, what stung me? And despite the warnings in my body... I decide to pick up the cord and just go right back. And I wasn't wearing my glasses. And so I go in, and all of a sudden, there's, there's a wasp on my eye. And I'm slapping myself in the face, <laughs> literally trying to get it off. And then it stings me right underneath my eye. And I'm freaking out. And so I'm like, boys, drop the pickets, get in the house. You know, like it's panic. And I... Uh, yeah, so if I have, like, if I kind of give you the stink eye today, it's not you. It's just how my face looks today. So has this ever happened to you? Have you ever ignored a warning? Have you ever repeatedly ignored a warning? Why do we think we know what's best despite messages that tell us otherwise? And that's what's happening in our text today. Paul is giving us a warning He says, if our identity is in Christ, then this is how you should live, and this is how you should not live. So on one level, the question is this morning, will we listen to Paul's warning? And on another deeper level, the question is, will we remember and believe that our identity is in Christ alone. So here's our big idea. I think it just flashed up. Our identity in Christ is what calls us to walk morally and stand in justice for the marginalized. Our first, our first point here is ancient paths and a narrow gate. Last week, Pastor Scott preached on the beginning of Ephesians 4, focusing on the encouragement for us to grow as disciples. Ephesians 4.15 says, let's grow in every way into Christ, who is the head of the body. Scott encouraged us not to divide on the issues of culture, but to remain united in faith in Christ and grow deeper in our faith as the church. It was a powerful message, one where I found myself saying, yes, 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 but how? But how? These sorts of messages cause a little bit of panic in me because the challenge to grow as a disciple is sometimes it feels really elusive. It feels like there's this insurmountable yet nameless resistance that we face. Can I get a, can I get a witness this morning? 
It feels like so much in my life is pushing me to rely on myself and trust in things rather than to rely on God and trust in Christ. And now on top of that, today's text has Paul just kind of hammering us with prohibitions of what we should not do. And if you feel like I do, I feel a little helpless at times. I'm just not sure where to go. Uh, And that was my focus in writing this message this week, to try and name that nameless resistance we feel and offer some context to Paul's prohibitions. So let's start with the latter, Paul's prohibitions. Ephesians is broken into two large sections, right? Uh, One through three is really Paul just telling us about our identity, and four through six is Paul telling us how to live. So after reading one through three, you know, I really liked Ephesians one through three. You know, personally, I liked being told who Christ is, who we are in Christ, this inheritance that we receive, right, that we're saved by grace, that we're new people. I really liked that. I don't know how much I like four through six, especially when you compare it to uh, Colossians, which is a very, a book, uh, very similar in form and content to Ephesians. Here's what Paul says, beginning in Ephesians 3, 5. So put to death the parts of your life that belong to the earth, such as sexual immorality, moral corruption, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And he picks up in verse 8. But now set aside these things such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene language. Don't lie to one another. Paul's not mincing words here. He is plainly telling us what our lives should look like and how they should not look like if we are disciples of Christ. But why does he seem so aggressive about it? Why does he seem so mad? I read the, I read the letters of Paul, and I kind of just, in the back of my mind, I say, ah, oh, that's just Paul. That's just how he does, you know? He's angry. But is it just Paul? Look at these, look at these texts. Jeremiah 6, 16. The Lord proclaims, stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? Then walk in it and find a resting place for yourselves. And another text that will be connected, but Jesus in Matthew 7. Go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road wide. So many people enter through it. But the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road is difficult. So few people find it. What these texts are pointing to is a tradition. There is a tradition of directing the people of God to the ancient paths, but they must ask for them. And a tradition of pointing people down the narrow way with boundaries to a gate that is narrow, but few people find it. It is difficult. It is a difficult way. See, Paul is kind of picking up on this tradition in Ephesians 5 where he talks about walking. So in the the NRSV translation, it says it this way. Ephesians 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So we are to walk like Christ walked. Ephesians 5, 8, for once you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. 
Paul is picking up on an ancient tradition that is directing us to walk a certain way, a way that has boundaries, and he is encouraging us in that. So there is this, where do we see this tradition? This tradition is found in Scripture all throughout. Let's pick up on just a few of them, significant ones. Moses with the Israelites, as they were slaves in Egypt, saved by the mighty hand of God through the Red Sea, brought to Mount Horeb to receive the Ten Commandments, and then on to the border of the Promised Land. And in Deuteronomy, right as they're at the border, ready to cross through, Moses takes a minute. And for the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, he tells the people who they are. He reminds them where they've come from. He reminds them that they are God's possession. And if they find themselves, their identity in God, therefore, they should live the Ten Commandments. They should follow the case laws. They should do these things so that, Deuteronomy 5, 32-33, you must walk the precise path so that you will live and that things will go well for you. He even tells them, if you do these things, you will have a long and prosperous life in this land. Jesus, in Matthew 5 through 7, this is the Sermon on the Mount, one of the pinnacle teachings of Christ. He kind of gives a little intro with the Beatitudes, but then he says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. And if you are these things, Therefore, this is how you should live. And he goes about a creative way of, you've once heard it said, but now I tell you. But it's the same pattern. It is this ancient path of reminding people of their identity in God and telling them, therefore, this is how you should live. And that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians. He says in 2.10, For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is leaning into a deep tradition which fervently reminds God's people of who they are and tells them how to live and not live. So I think the question here is, if this tradition has been ongoing and it's been before us, why is it so difficult for us to live the way we are told to live? What makes it so hard to be a disciple? We're on to the second point now, when things become God's. What makes it hard is the barrage of messages we receive from the culture that are against and even anti the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes it hard is that those messages tell us a narrative that we know doesn't feel right, but it's not altogether wrong So we begin to entertain it. What's hard is we like ourselves and we love ourselves and the culture tells us that's enough. And we don't always disagree. Being a disciple of Christ is hard because the culture promises you more authority with less sacrifice and it feels true enough so we begin to move the line so that we are good with culture and be good with the church too. Being a disciple is hard because the church is also compromising. 
being more concerned with being relevant to the culture on modern-day issues than calling you back to the ancient paths and reminders of who you really are. And this is how things become God's. Ephesians 5.5 says, Because you know for sure that persons who are sexually immoral, impure, or greedy, which happens when things become God's, those persons won't inherit the kingdom of Christ in God. We lose sight of who we are. We lose faith in the power of God. And we disregard the importance of godly living. We are literally walking in the dark. Ephesians 4.17 and 5.6 kind of together, kind of get at this idea of walking in the dark. Gentiles base their lives on pointless thinking. Gentiles is really another phrase for the culture out there, a people group. Nobody should deceive you with stupid ideas. God's anger comes down on those who are disobedient because of this kind of thing. See, I like how Paul kind of says things real roughshod sometimes. We are pressed in on all sides. We are surrounded by anti-gospel messages, and we need to make decisions about what and who to believe. Being a disciple is hard. Let me be more specific about that nameless resistance I referred to earlier. My hope is that by naming this resistance, it will help you see what's at stake when you give into it. I want to name the culture around us and the predominant religious idea that pounds us here in the West. Third culture and Gnosticism, respectively. Sociologist Philip Reef talks, uh, he kind of gives a, a, a definition of culture here in the West. Um, and there's, he has a variety of ideas, but I just want to talk about two pertinent ones to us this morning. What, what Christianity is, you know, predominantly, is what he would call second culture. And that's to find that we're monotheistic, we worship one true God, uh, our faith is based on Scripture and creeds found within that Scripture. There are, there are sacred uh, um, commandments that we are to follow and prohibitions that we are to stay away from. And if we live this life, sacred commandments and prohibitions, then justice, biblical justice, is done. That's his definition of what he would call second culture. And I think at many times, because we live in a country that is founded on Christian faith, we feel like that's who we are. That's who we are. But uh, uh, Philip Reef would disagree. He would disagree, and he would say, in fact, the culture around us is what he would call third culture. And this is a, a little excerpt about what he, how he defines third culture. Third culture exists primarily to define themselves against second cultures, against Christianity. They believe in no greater truth. There is no sacred order. Instead, their energy is devoted to deconstructing the sacred. They have no creed but heresy, and their cultural power is centered on transgressing the sacred commandments and prohibitions of second culture. The only authority is found with the individual. Thus, there is no possibility of a sacred order. All authority that challenges and restricts the autonomy of the individual must be leveled. For anyone here thinking this is just a millennial, Gen X, Gen Y problem, think again. This is the culture that surrounds us 
in the West. The truth is, the third culture of the West is ultimately a post-Christian culture, one whose pure focus is to disfigure second culture, Christianity. It has no creeds but itself, and it believes that the ultimate authority is each individual person. And it reminds you of that day after day. It's about you. Third culture's great mission is to prohibit anyone from prohibiting and to spread its dogma that there should be no dogma. <clears throat> and this is why the church is this is why the church trying to be relevant to this culture, to try and win souls, will not work because this culture doesn't care for the ancient paths. It wants to destroy the ancient paths. <clears throat> but the, the hard part here is that the church does care about being relevant to this culture. Whenever we feel the discomfort between us and third culture, we try to figure out what we must do to make the pressure go away. We found, we found that all we have to do is ease up on those beliefs that grate against the third culture sensibilities, and then we're right back on the good side of that Seattle freeze. Nice. It's hard to be a disciple when the pressure from third culture tempts us and even berates us into living other than what Scripture and God have commanded us to live. Does this description resonate with you, this description of culture, the pressure that you feel, this nameless pressure to resign how you've been commanded to live? The temptation to, to give in to culture only gets harder when we, your leaders and teachers, are not dispelling the false gospel of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, gnosis, means knowledge in Greek. And this is less of a religion, I guess. Uh, more, um, I, it's less of a people group and more of an idea. And what it is, is uh, it's this belief that the God who created where we are are both inferior. The God and the creation are somehow both inferior. And there's this sublime place out there beyond this God, beyond this place, and we just need to discover it. So it encourages us, learn more, discover more, push deep inside yourself and find the secret knowledge the mysterious truth that lives inside you so that you can escape this place and go to the sublime. If you think about it, it's really, it's really an inversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ where God is good, creation is good, humanity is good, right? And that we release ourselves to Jesus Christ who is the Savior, who has all authority, and doesn't just eject us from this creation, but rather, like it says in Revelations, will bring heaven to earth. And this is no mystery. The secret is open, as we read in Ephesians 3. The mystery has been made known to us. We just need to receive it. It is a complete inversion of the gospel. And the thing is, is that the culture around us is pressing us to say, it's not a gospel of Jesus Christ. It's rather, it's a gospel of self. The power, the truth, the mystery is all in you. Push harder. You need no other authority in your life to tell you what to do, what to believe. 
and how to be saved. It's all in you. It's hard to be a disciple. Third culture and Gnosticism put pressure on the church on all sides to woo you away from your Christian faith. It can, it can become especially hard, as I said, when we, your leaders, neglect to remind you who you are and you forget who you've been called to be. Then you become consumed with the gospel of self. You become consumed with your own state, your worship experience, your safety. When we become consumed with ourselves, then we, the church, become indifferent to those on the margins and the justice we have been called to, to fight for on their behalf. When we forget the oppressed, inhumane acts run rampant at the pleasure of the powerful, as has been exampled with immigrant family separation. This policy is disgusting. It's deplorable. Six weeks where families are separated, 2,000 children taken from their families, put into camps, literally laying in cages. The Texas Tribune reported that inspectors went in and found 400 uh, misappropriate acts against children, broken wrists, burns on their bodies, being solicited for sex, finding sexually transmitted diseases with kids. See, what's terrible about this is that parentless kids in a broken system, that's a sex trafficker's dream, right? When the foster care system's working well, it's protecting and caring and uh, reconnecting kids with, with appropriate families. But when it's overwhelmed, when it's not working well, that is a main feeder for sex trafficking. So our, our administration, with this inappropriate and well, ill-conceived policy, has set up a system that is broken and potentially has changed these kids' lives forever, families' lives forever. And I know that the executive order was signed on Thursday, but this trauma has already been done. This trauma to these families has already been done, and families aren't even re- reunited yet. And let's not forget that this this policy, that that crossing the border illegally is a misdemeanor. Do you know what a misdemeanor is? It's a parking ticket. And I I would think that if we were to take kids away for parking tickets, half of us would be separated from our families right now. But this is not simply a critique of our narcissistic administration and its inhumane policy For scripture tells us in Matthew 7, 5, first take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother and sister's eye. So we have to ask ourselves, how was this administration able to have the moral leeway and support to choose to do something so awful? I tell you, it's because we've forgotten who we are We've forgotten that we've been commanded to love the foreigner. If we'd loved the foreigner, we would come out in force as advocates. And even to put it in a political light, there would have been a voter base that our administration would have seen that says, these people love the foreigner. We might lose votes if we go this way. I tell you, 
We are culpable for these inhumane acts because we have forgotten that we have been commanded to love the foreigner. The same goes for those who go to prison and reoffend coming out. We have left the rehabilitation and the remembrance that these people are also God's children. We've left it up to the prison system. And for those who are poor that we've been commanded to feed to give drinks, to clothe. We've forgotten to do that. And there is hopelessness on their part. What does Christ say to the righteous in Matthew 25? When they come to him, they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply and say, I assure you that when you have done it for the least of these brothers and sisters, you have done it to me. They aren't even aware that they're loving Christ. They aren't even aware because it is in their DNA to love and care for these people. How we walk matters, but what we stand for also matters. Biblical justice. Paul contrasts walking in Ephesians 5 with standing in Ephesians 6. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and have done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness It is not just about walking the path. It is about standing in justice for those who are marginalized. Amen. Listen, I know this is a hard word. I know this is a difficult word. Don't close the ears of your hearts to it. I don't say it just to be critical, just to be judgmental or be doom. I say it because I want the church to be healed. And the church cannot be healed, a patient cannot be healed without a proper diagnosis. So I hope that you will hear this as a diagnosis, hear this as a warning, and respond likewise to be healed. So let me give you three three reminders uh, or encouragements to uh, step into a deep faith to ask for the ancient paths, to walk to the narrow gate. And I want to, uh, so this is our third point, and I want to kind of set it up like Paul sets it up. This whole section, four, in 417, he says, so I'm telling you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, you shouldn't live your life like the Gentiles anymore. This is sort of a, kind of a funny thing, because he's writing to Gentiles. They're, they're, they are Gentiles in the church, living amongst Gentiles. So, What is he saying? What he's saying is that you should break from your current culture around you. I mean, if he was going to contemporize it for us, he'd say, 
You shouldn't live your life like Westerners anymore. You shouldn't live your life like Americans anymore. You shouldn't live your life like Seattleites anymore. Break from the culture around you and live your life like Christians. So here's, here's the first point. And I, I think this is probably, in, at least for me, it's one of the most difficult ones. We believe that ultimate authority is with us. We are actually told by our culture, you are entitled to the authority. You're entitled to your rights. You're entitled to ignore anything you want to ignore and do anything you want to do. If you want to break from culture and find yourself on the ancient paths, deauthorize yourselves from your lives. Scripture says that the word of Christ is confounding to the Gentiles. And why was it confounding? It's because they gave up their lives. They literally considered themselves slaves to Christ. And they gave themselves to Christ, putting Christ as the ultimate authority in their lives to direct, to empower, to give and to take away. Deauthorize yourselves as the authority of your life and give that to Christ. Oh, I had, a, I had a scripture text in here. Submit, <laughs> submit to each other out of respect for Christ. We're going to hear about that next week. So this is kind of one of these interesting things where when we submit our ultimate authority to Christ, submitting to each other is not a problem. It's not a challenge. There's no more pride. So submit to Christ. You can submit to one another. Second point, walk morally. I should have had the spacings, the fill in the blank the other way. Withdraw. Withdraw from culture. Jesus, uh, Luke uh, records Jesus in 5.16 saying, but Jesus would withdraw to, to deserted places for prayer. It's, I think a way to say this is that how can you give others the living water of Christ if you yourself are dry, right? So we are called to withdraw from culture, not out of fear, but out of a knowledge that the, the place where we get filled up with living water is in Jesus Christ. And so we press into the ancient ways, into prayer, into scripture reading. We, we press into our community. And I know in our current kind of culture and age, scripture and prayer and, and symbols of the church are not all around us. So it's even that much more uh, necessary for us to be uh, a little bit hard-lined about our withdrawing, about our investing in Scripture and prayer and in one another and encouraging other on in the faith because culture doesn't care and it wants to actually destroy those things. So we must be intentional on each other's behalf. Amen? Last, stand in justice, return Ephesians 4.24 says, Clothe yourself with the new person created uh, in God's image in justice and true holiness. The withdrawing is with intention. Again, it's not out of fear. We desire to be filled up with the Holy Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit, with the fruit of the Spirit, so that we may walk like Christ did, and stand in justice for the marginalized. And I know that in some ways that's difficult because we might feel like we want to be Superman and change, change a whole structure of injustice. 
But what I would encourage you to do is to find ways just to simply fulfill the command of Christ to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to visit those in prison, to care for the poor. Do these things in little ways, and if we all do these things in little ways, then it will become apparent to those in power that the oppressed have an advocate in the church. That is our witness. That is our witness. To be, there's so many groups out there that are being, that are being more justice-minded than the church, and frankly, doing it better. But they have not the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ who gives hope and salvation that can never be taken away. This is what Christ has imbued upon us through the Holy Spirit. So may we remember who we are. And if we, your leaders, are not telling you this, challenge us. Keep us accountable. Because if we forget who we are, then we've seen. We've seen what happens. So remember that you are Christ's possession. That you have been bought with a price. Walk morally. Stand in justice for the marginalized. Be who you are called to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word that you have given us this morning. I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you will translate these words into the hearts of your people, and you will do more than just seed them. You will grow them. You will grow them into plants of righteousness, Lord God. May you help us remember who you have called us to be and that who we are as your children, children of light, And may we spread light everywhere we go, Lord God, by proclaiming you. We thank you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.